Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So much has been written about Felix Sater and his broken margarita glass and his international snitching and his Ukrainian peace proposal and his Moscow hotel plan that I am just not sure how much more we can actually add to that other than the completely unexpected picture of him with Rachel Maddow. But Felix is important, so important, in fact, that the Department of Justice for years hid his role in a mobbed-up financial fraud case, secrecy that enabled Felix to get into real estate development with none other than Donald Trump in Florida, of course. Hi, I'm Pat Beal, and this is number five in our series of dancing oligarchs, odd stories of Russians, Russian associates, Russian money that came to Florida and had some connection, however brief, with Donald J. Trump. He's our president. And that is our Frank Cherubino, who is providing musical interludes and who will also probably talk to. Probably. More like 100% certain. This is not a podcast that will lead to indictments. There are no gotcha moments here, just campfire tales about some very interesting people tied to Russia. Very interesting people. If you've heard the name Felix Sater before now, it's likely because of his own strange backstory, and partly because that backstory falls so neatly between Russia and Donald Trump. But to understand why Congress and others are fixated on Felix and how he came to do business with Trump, you need to understand what it was he did and who he was doing it with long before he got to the Donald. Like the murky years starting in 1998, when he had a leading role in a massive U.S. and Russia mob-supported stock fraud. Did somebody say mob? I might need to adjust the musical backdrop here. And then there were the murky years the Department of Justice worked overtime to keep anyone from knowing about Felix's role as a fraudster and mob associate, a silence that enabled Felix to get into the condo hotel business with Donald Trump and also get millions of dollars from Iceland. Nice ice you got there, Iceland. It would be a shame if something happened to it. We'll take a swing through Iceland. We'll even get to South Florida, too. But first, we're going drinking. In 1991, in a Mexican eatery in Manhattan called El Rio Grande. Did I hear you say we're going drinking, Pat? That is where Felix, then a young stockbroker out drinking with friends, broke a margarita glass and stabbed a commodity trader in the face. Stockbroker? More like facebroker. One glass attack, 110 stitches, and time behind bars for Felix. Also, no more stock selling. Stockbroker regulators were not amused. I've heard that Wall Street is cutthroat, but this guy Felix is taking it a little too literally. 
It couldn't have been a long time behind bars, though, because a few years later, Felix was working in stock trading. Slashing a guy with a broken margarita glass sounds like a career-ending move, so how do you get back into stock trading so soon? With a little help from his friends. One of Felix's neighborhood friends was Salvatore Loria. In fact, Salvatore was out drinking with Felix that violent night at El Rio Grande. Salvatore was an immigrant at risk of deportation, and Felix was barred from selling stocks, but never mind, because Felix and Salvatore weren't exactly selling stocks. Wait, time out, Pat. How can you be a stockbroker who doesn't sell stocks? I mean, that's like being a shoeshine guy who doesn't polish shoes. Well, Felix and Salvatore were bribing brokers to manipulate stocks. Oh, that doesn't sound legal. Neither does this. They were using crime families to enforce the deals. Families plural. The Russian mob had a role, too. And though prosecutors said that Felix and Salvatore used mobsters as enforcers, Felix seemed perfectly capable of enforcing all by himself. Felix sounds like a kind of scary guy. I might have to enter the accordionist protection program when this podcast is over. According to a witness statement filed as part of the fraud, Felix became unhappy with an associate who was laundering money through Amsterdam. The man had a heroin habit. He also had about half a million dollars Felix wanted back. Asked to return the money. Well, he gave it back to Felix and apologized would be my guess. He bought a bazooka and some less lethal weaponry. Boy, I didn't see that one coming. Felix was undeterred, though. A bazooka would deter me. According to the witness statement, Felix kidnapped the man and locked him in a room without heroin. After three days of agonizing withdrawal, the man told Felix exactly where the money was. Whereupon, Felix took him to get some medical help and gave him enough money to start a new life in another country. So in the end, you could say that Felix is a crooked margarita glass slashing, stockbroker turned mobbed up kidnapper with a big heart. You're just trying to make me like this guy, Pat. Mobsters were not the only link to Russia. Felix and Salvatore were talking about investments in Russian oil. As our father of the bride in episode one, Tamir Sapir, knew, nobody but nobody gets to sell Russian oil without some friends in very high places. Felix Salvatore and their band of schemers weren't just about the oil, though. The fraud called for selling investments in women's shoes, anti-piracy software, bathtubs, and at one point, possibly, a beauty parlor. Dear customers, if you don't like the way your hair was cut, Please make your complaints to the man with the bazooka. They had hoped to sell shares of a Bahamas casino, too, but that fell through when a high roller broke the casino's bank. A lot of the fraud, though, was just a classic pump and dump. Pump and dump? What's pump and dump? Thanks for asking. I love talking about stock fraud. And if you watched more than Leonardo DiCaprio in Wolf of Wall Street, you probably have already seen a bit of this. Here's how it works. Let's say Joe buys 10,000 shares of a stock selling for 50 cents a share. In Felix's case, bribed brokers started talking up the stock to clients. It was a hidden gem poised to take off. Everyone could get rich. As more and more trusting shareholders buy in, the share price rises. That's the pump part. When the share prices get high because of all this buying, let's say $100 a share, Joe sells. That's the dump part. So, if our fictional Joe paid $5,000 for shares, artificially pumped to a value of $100,000, he pockets $95,000 when he dumps them. 
Wow, pump and dump. That sounds like a good way to make a lot of money. Except there are some legal shortcomings and lots of victims involved. When Joe sells his wildly inflated stock, that triggers a downward sell-off that slams the price back to penny stock reality. The widows and orphans who paid $100 a share for stock worth 50 cents, they get bupkis. Scammers put in pennies and get big bucks. Duped investors put in big bucks and get loose change. And there were a lot of investors. This was a $40 million swindle involving thousands of people, which might not have come to light at all if a woman named Marina Schapp had just paid her rent on a storage unit in Soho. You know, it's always the little things that unravel grand schemes. When the manager popped open the unit, he found mysterious Marina had left behind two millimeter pistols, a shotgun, and papers in a gym bag that left a trail of crumbs to the fraud. Felix, Salvatore, and a cast of others would be arrested. Felix wasted no time in agreeing to spy for the feds. And this is where the years of secrets begin. It's hard to imagine that the feds would want to rely on a guy like Felix, though. Not only rely on Felix, but also do a wildly effective job of disappearing his past. Look, it is not odd to find something sealed in a federal case, especially if the person charged is going to be helping the prosecution. What made the DOJ's all-out effort to conceal Felix's arrest feel a little odd, and what made Felix's future business deals run so smoothly, is that the feds kept a lid on Felix's financial crime for so long. Even after one judge described the sealed documents as practically antique, the case largely remained on lockdown. Even after his criminal file was made public in the National Archives, even after Salvatore published a book about their misadventures, the feds argued to keep courthouse records under wraps. So what were the charges? They were sealed for about 13 years. And what were the elements of the deal that the feds made with Felix? Still sealed. And the arguments for keeping everything sealed, they were kept under lock and key, too. At one point, even Felix's attorney asked that her name not be linked to him in court records. So how did Felix get so lucky? Well, you could argue that all that secrecy was for his safety. He was snitching on the U.S. mob. He was likely snitching on the Russian mob. He may have been involved in snitching on terrorists. His cooperative snitching was extraordinary, according to one prosecutor. The prosecutor says quite a bit more about how Felix helped, but we don't know what it is because, well, it's blacked out. I guess if you do enough bad things with bad people and are willing to talk about it, you can become embraced by the good guys. Felix snitched so much and so often and so well that future Obama U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch described our Margarita Wielding, addict kidnapping, self-confessed racketeer as crucial to national security. Now, amid all this secrecy, the years roll on, and so what does one do between international snitching and awaiting sentencing for helping orchestrate a massive mobbed-up financial fraud? I don't know. You can open a Froyo shop, maybe? Real estate. Because his financial fraud background wasn't public, because DOJ had his back on that one for years and years and years, Felix could get into the big money development business with anyone. And the government just let him? Mum's the word. He partnered with a former USSR bureaucrat turned hotelier in a venture called Bayrock. They worked out of an office in Trump Tower. Trump Tower. Oh, yeah, here it comes. 
By 2007, when the New York Times spilled the beans on Felix's past, Bayrock was already in business with Donald Trump, bigly. Bayrock partnered on developing Trump Soho. They had plans for more Trump-branded condo hotels, including one in the Sunshine State and eventually one, maybe, in Moscow. Now, exactly what Felix did at Bayrock is a bit fuzzy. In a deposition, he said he had several titles involving the word manager and a few different business cards, too. Meanwhile, those super-sealed court case papers about the stock swindle, the ones the Justice Department was determined to keep under wraps, Felix kept them in the bottom drawer of his desk in Trump Tower, where he could get to them fast because, he said, while he was doing these multi-million dollar financial deals, he was also constantly talking to his lawyers about his secret multi-million dollar fraud case. He even brought Salvatore on board to help him out. Well, wait a minute. Did Trump know anything about Felix's past? Actually, Trump seemed genuinely surprised at the news. Alex Sapir, who you may recall from our second episode, Prince of Diamonds, was involved in Trump Soho too, and he seemed shocked as well. Even Felix later said bankers never would have dealt with Bayrock if they knew about his mobbed-up fraud conviction. But how could anyone know? The Department of Justice was keeping it quiet. So Felix couldn't do any of his highfalutin real estate deals without the complicit silence of the federal government. Which is probably why Felix could squeeze $50 million from an Iceland investment fund to pay for building Trump Soho and a Trump Fort Lauderdale project. And now, a twisty trip down an Iceland rabbit hole. Pat, you know, I just I may not have any suitable Icelandic rabbit hole music. I have faith in you, Frank. Just do the best you can. All right, I'll try. That investment fund was headed by an Iceland man who once described himself as a rock star CEO. He was known for, and right now I want to make it very clear I am using other people's words, his golden mullet and Arctic blue eyes. And I know you think you don't want to know what happened in Iceland in 2008. But the fund forking over 50 mil to help build Trump condo hotels also had a role in the island's near-total economic collapse. Yeah, I remember the collapse of Iceland's banks. All three of them. It brought the whole country to its knees. Author Michael Lewis wrote that as America's own financial house of cards tumbled in the 2008 recession, Americans could still always point to Iceland and say, well, at least we didn't do that. There's been speculation for years, too, that Russian money had been pouring into the country and its banks before the collapse. Our rock star CEO owned a piece of one of those banks, and perhaps that's why there's been interest in whether the Iceland money for Trump projects may have been tinged with Russian money. That, and the fact that Russia quickly offered to bail the Icelandic banks out of their looming collapse. Now, to be clear, no one has proved the banks were brimming with Russian money, much less that Russian money from a bank went to Trump projects, but that has not stopped the questions. Whatever happened to the bankers who allowed Iceland's banks to be plundered? Well, what happened was another thing Iceland did that America did not. Iceland's bankers went to jail. Well played, Iceland. Emerging now from the Iceland rabbit hole. Back in the U.S., Felix could negotiate Moscow hotel development with Donald Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen. He could come up with a peace plan for the Ukraine-Russian conflict and get it on Michael Flynn's desk. 
He could thumb his nose at all those court motions designed to keep him safe by telling the Los Angeles Times that he was building Trump Towers by day and hunting Osama bin Laden by night. Yeah, right. And at his sentencing on the stock fraud, Felix could tell the judge that the 2007 New York Times story had blown up his attempt to leave his criminal past behind. The judge wondered aloud how someone who had shown as much character as Felix could have engaged in a stock swindle, and then the judge gave him a $25,000 fine. That's probably because the Fed said he had done great secret things for the country. It's amazing how Trump seems to be a magnet for all these shady Russian characters. So, we've traveled from a Tex-Mex bar in Manhattan to a Soho storage locker to Trump Soho to Russia to Iceland to a Brooklyn courtroom. And we are coming in for a landing in South Florida where a condo project flops and Donald Trump's memory hiccups. So we're not done with Felix Sater? Oh, no, Frank. We're just rounding the bend on Felix. First, there are recent legal requests that those antique files of his be unsealed completely. That could happen within weeks. But beyond the secrecy in the courts, there's the tale of Felix Donald in a Florida condo project. That's part two of Margarita Man. There are many, many excellent stories out there about Felix and Trump Soho and Bayrock and Iceland. We've got links to some of the most compelling, as well as various source documents on our website, dancingoligarchs.com. And as always, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you want to hear more of and send any comments or questions to dancingoligarchs at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review wherever you download your podcast. It helps listeners find their way to our stories, perhaps even introducing them for the very first time to the role of accordion music in news gathering.